Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Looking out for you and yours with our new life and mortgage protection insurance. But first this morning, journalist and author Rachel English has joined me in studio. And on a weekday morning, Rachel can be found on this side of the desk interviewing politicians and journalists and all sorts of experts on Morning Ireland. But today she's the interviewee and we're going to chat about music and growing up in the 80s. And it all comes together in her new book. It's called Whatever Happened to Birdie Troy. It's published by Hachette. Good morning, Rachel. Morning, Miriam. It's a great... Is it less comfortable being on this side of the, the oh, mic? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's it's quite a bit scarier over this side, actually. I'm, I don't I don't think twice about coming in and sitting where you are. I just kind of walk in in the morning. Maybe it's we have no time in the morning, so I'm just <laughs> kind of sit there and think it's fine. But yeah, this is more nerve-wracking. Yeah, All right. no, I agree. Okay, let's start first with explaining who Birdie Troy is. Birdie Troy is a young woman from a town called Steelstown in County Clare, which is a fictional town, but is kind of inspired my, by my own hometown of Shannon. And we, and we can come to that in a moment. And Birdie is in a rock band with her three best friends, Loretta Saunders, who's the singer, Gail McGeehan, who plays the bass, and Yvonne Hayes, who's the drummer. And they have a band called The Diamonds and they're, they're good. And and that's that's and I want to make that that clear about them from the start that they're not chancers. They actually are really good. And I suppose I got the idea because I was interested in writing about that time, the early 1980s. And I sometimes think that when we talk about the 80s now, we tend to conflate that decade with the 50s. And even though it was a dark time in many ways in Ireland, you know, dark for for lots of people, Mm. for women, there there was high unemployment, high emigration, never ending violence in the north. Even taking all of that into account, it was also... It was a decade where Ireland was opening up and I think one of the main ways in which it was opening up was through young people's obsession with music and popular culture and, and we had we had the records, we had the radio programmes, we had Top of the Pops, you know, yeah. remember when the world stopped for Top of the Pops, we had music magazines and I think all of those were our portal into another world. And of course, there are two parts to your book, Then and Now. Then is the 80s, as you say, when the band gets together and subsequently splits up. And now it's the story of Stacey who wants to track them down. Why is she so keen to do that? Well, Stacey Nash is a young woman from Limerick and she has a podcast called Whatever Happened To, where she tries to track down people who were once famous or as she says herself, you know, it's Ireland. So they didn't have to be exactly famous, like moderately well known would do. (laughs) And she has quite a bit of success with it. But she's finding it hard to make money, like, like many people in that area do. And even though she has listeners, she's not managing to make enough to live on. And on the same day that she gets an eviction notice from her apartment, she also gets an email from a listener called Senan O'Reilly, who says that she should find out about an all-woman rock band from the early 80s called The Diamonds, that there's a story to tell. And she's never heard of The Diamonds. And to begin with, she's sceptical because she thinks, well, the 80s really... It was the last decade in which it was possible to disappear. You know, it was pre it was the pre-internet mm. decade. People could have been immensely famous and they could have just dropped off the radar. But she sees a video on YouTube of their one and only appearance on top of the pops. And she's absolutely transfixed by them. And 
she just has difficulty believing that 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 for such compelling young women, because three of them at the time are only teenagers, that that, that could simply vanish. So the more she finds out, and the more obstacles people put in her way the more obsessed she becomes with it and everything else, all her other worries are sort of shoved to one side so she can find the diamonds. I was thinking you must have really enjoyed the research for this one, right? I mean, what music were you listening to? What videos did you find on YouTube yourself? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it was a fascinating period in Ireland because I've kind of painted the diamonds as being sort of near contemporaries of U2. So U2 for girls, as as one of the rock magazines calls them. Um, So the sort of thing, though, that the diamonds were inspired by, which which I think is important, is they would have been big fans of, to give you an idea of where they're coming from, they would have been big fans of Patti Smith, Debbie, Harry, the Go-Go's. I think of them, as I said to somebody else, I think of them as kind of, you know, the Go-Go's only with Claire accents and um, fewer drugs. But um, but that, that's how I think of the Diamonds. And so, so that's what they would have been into. Well, since you mentioned the Go-Go's, we have a clip of the Go-Go's just to bring our listeners right back into that time. And of course, the great Belinda Carlisle was lead singer of the Go-Go's. Were there any female bands I was trying to remember in Ireland at that time? I don't remember any. And we obviously had great cool singers like Leslie Dowdle, who was on our show a few months back. But you didn't really find girls playing the bass of the drums, did you? No. And I, I think Leslie Dowdle would have been one of the first, you know, even women fronting a rock band because there, there were music at that time was really male dominated. And I mean, we've been through just been through a decade in Ireland where there, there were lots of very successful male bands. You know, you had Tin Lizzy, yeah. you had Horse Lips. And then going into that era, there was the Undertones, there was the U, there was U2. But just the thought of, of yeah, of, of just four young women, you know, like I said, three of them teenagers from the west of Ireland and sort of the audacity of it as as people see it and the sort of obstacles that, that they would have faced. And of course when you look back as you said Top of the Pops was huge in the 80s but I often wonder are, are we mindful now of the creepier side of things the allegations against you know presenters and managers in the music industry at that time you know do we look at it differently now? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I'm always I'm always conflicted by this myself because the 80s are in many ways a, a funny decade. And, and Stacey, the podcaster, kind of comes up with this, against this again and again, where people are telling her, oh, well, you know, things were very dark. There was a lot of sexism. Women were treated very badly. She said, and then she goes on YouTube and she sees all the messages under the videos, which are full of things like, you know, happiest years of my life would give anything to go back to those years and all mm-hmm. of that. So th- there is something strange about nostalgia, isn't yeah, there? Absolutely. And, and how we view things in a certain way, maybe, you know, everybody, no matter what generation you are, you view the decade in which you were young a certain way. But yes, I mean, even as you mentioned Top of the Pops, you know, the BBC still repeat a lot of those episodes, but there are also an awful lot they can't repeat because of the presenters, principally Jimmy Savile. 
Absolutely. And listen, we don't want to give away any spoilers to your great book, but it's safe to say that your band experiences some of the kind of misogyny, the creepy men who want to shape their look and tell them exactly what to do and when to do it. Yes, they do. And, you know, I, I try to in many ways do that as subtly as possible. You don't want to you don't want to be hitting people over the head with this. But yes, they they they, they do come up against a lot of obstacles and they keep climbing over them and climbing over them until they can't do it anymore and until until everything comes to a point where 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 the band falls apart but yes even even the sort of casual sexism of it that you have men saying things like you know for four young girls now you make a fierce lot of noise and think <laughs> you know things like that but, um, and just just what they come up against in 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 their day-to-day lives even though they are you know, they're great fun. Well, I like to think they're great fun. They're anyway. great fun. It's, and it's a, it's a great read. Actually, what was your own experience growing up in the 80s in Shannon? What was that like? You see, I, I had, you know, the, the uh, proverbial childhood that Frank McCourt said isn't worth your while. I had the happy childhood, yeah. you well, know. that's lovely. And Shannon was, in the 80s, was a great place to grow up. And I think it surprises some people who don't really know the town when you say that because it's a new town and because, you know, nobody would ever make their fortune selling postcards of Shannon. It's it's not, you know, it's, it's a new town built in the mm. 60s, 70s and 80s mainly. But it was a fantastic place to grow up. It was very different from most other places in Ireland at that time in that it was filled pretty much entirely with young families Everybody had been born or brought up for the first few years of their lives somewhere else. We were all blow-ins. We were all newcomers. It was by Irish standards of those time of those times. It was quite diverse. I mean, not only were there are a lot of lot of us who like like me who were the children of returned emigrants. There were refugees from Chile in my class at school. There were there were people from all over the place who'd been brought to Shannon because of the airport and the industrial estate. And it was just, it was a very loud place to grow up because we were all out on the street all the time. But it is funny, just a couple of days ago, actually in a bookshop, I was talking to somebody else who'd grown up in Shannon and it took us about two minutes to get to the, didn't we have a lovely childhood conversation? <laughs> and we did. Which is lovely. And actually, I don't know you very well, although we work here, like mm. I know you not at all. So I asked you this morning about your parents and they're both alive, hearty, Tony and Ruth. They are. They are. My dad's had a bit of ill health the past year. My mother's in great form. Um, yes, they're very much still in Shannon. I should say when we <coughs> moved there in oh, the start of 1976, my mother says now that she told herself 18 months at the most. <laughs> that's as long as I'm staying here. <laughs> and she's still, she's still there the best part of 50 years later. So uh, that tells you all you need to know. But yes, they are. They are. And they, they, they enjoy they enjoy the book stuff. And interestingly, you're an only child, mm. which seems to have benefited you greatly. Like there's always words written, is it a plus or a minus? But clearly you get all the love of your mother and father just to yourself. Well, that is true. That is true. And yes, um, no, no complaints. Absolutely no complaints. I suppose most only children at some point when they're young think, oh, I might like to have a brother and sister. But no, I didn't really. And I think maybe part of that was being in Shannon, like you just had so many friends because there were so many young people that I didn't, 
Yeah, it was never an issue for me. Never. You came to Dublin to go to college. You weren't playing gigs like the Diamonds, but you were living <laughs> in the same area. What was Dublin for you back like back then, coming up from China? See, you've got to remember, I was 17. And you go, God, this makes me sound now like Peg coming off the blaskets. <laughs> but I had only been to Dublin, I'd say, about four times in my life. Right. Which, like Birdie in the book, that's that's where this is, there's a sec- section in the book about Birdie arriving in Dublin and her mind being blown away by the place. I was a little bit like that. And I do remember, you know, I walk around and I didn't know one side of the Liffey from the other. I went to DCU. There was nobody I knew in my class. There was nobody I knew in the entire college. Like I, I, I knew nobody. But at that age, it doesn't really matter, does no. it? Because you just, everybody's in the same position and you just get on with it. And I, I feel very fortunate that, that I had that and that you just have to meet other people. And then you do tend to gravitate, I suppose, towards, funnily enough, I gravitated towards, you know, <clears throat> the other people from medium-sized towns around the country because <laughs> we'd have a lot in common. And I think I think that's what I was trying to do with Steelstown in the book was, you know, Megan, if you're from a medium-sized town anywhere, a place a Dubliner would call a small town, but we know they're medium-sized towns. If you're Definitely. from if you're from that sort of town, yeah, you, you'll recognise Steelstown. So now you work both as a journalist and as a writer, but when you were young and in college and coming out of college, Did you want to be a writer then and you kind of headed towards journalism or did you want to be a journalist? How did you even become a journalist? Um, Did I want to become a journalist? Yes, very much so. I I would have had ideas about writing when I was at school. It was it was by far, you know, my favourite thing about school. I sort of I was, you know, the child who'd spent a day writing their English essay and then, you know, shove all the other homework into about 10 minutes in front in front of MTUSA or whatever was on yeah. t- TV at the time. But it just wasn't... It's like I never seriously considered writing because it just wasn't a thing that anybody did. Mm. You know, it, it, it was a pursuit from another world. And so I was fortunate when I left college um, in 1989, it was the year that local radio was starting. And that local radio gave an awful lot of opportunity to an awful lot of people at that time. And it involved going back down to Clare. And I always say that I learned more about Clare in the 18 months or so I spent in Clare FM than I ever did growing up in Shannon, because Shannon was very much a world onto itself and also our, our hinterland tended to be Limerick City. We, mm. we went into, we, you know, we thumbed a lift or got the bus into Limerick. Whereas my time in Clare FM taught me an awful lot more about Clare. So yes, and I discovered pretty quickly when I started work in Clare FM that yeah, this was what I wanted to do, that, that I, I, did, I did really enjoy it. It's almost the best training, isn't it? Starting in local radio, because also local radio is so big, it's like mega when you live in the place, but yes. also just the discipline of having to turn around stories so quickly. Yes, and, and just the, the weight of expectation and it local radio took off so quickly at that time. And to begin with, you know, I, I always joke, but this is actually true, that um, the reason I got the job in Clare FM was well, A, my father, you know, had me pestered to, you know, will you will you tell them you're available now sort of thing as though they'd be only dying to have me. Like I was still <laughs> at college. But um, 
I remember a long time afterwards, Cayman Jones, who was the boss at the time, telling me that it was a toss up. You know, they had three jobs for journalists, one of whom, by the way, was Marty Morrissey. But they had they had two other jobs and um, (laughs) it was a toss up between me and somebody else. And the thing that I had on my side was that I was from Shannon and they had nobody else employed in the station who was from Shannon. And he was thinking second largest town in the county. We really should give somebody from there a job. So that, that, that's how I got a start. Worked out so well. And when did you originally think you could write a novel? And I love that funny story that when you explained to Kevin Bacchus, oh. he was hoping you weren't going to write it. Oh, gosh. Fifty Shades yeah, of Grey. Yeah, this has been, re- this has been resurrected. I, um, I wrote uh, my first book um, without telling anybody about it. Well, like obviously I told my husband, I yeah. told my mother and she would read it as, as I was writing. But I told very few people um, until I got an agent and, and got a publisher. And then, uh, yeah, Kevin Backhurst, who's now obviously the Director General, um, was, was Director of News at the time. And I thought, well, gosh, I have to go in and tell him about this because, you know, I can't just be bringing out a book and saying surprise to people. So um, I went in and at the time, Fifty Shades of Grey was was everywhere. Like, there was just no, and, and all its kind of subsidiaries and, and you know, all the, all just all the palaver that there was surrounding this, this kind of erotic stuff at the time. And I think he said to me, he was so nice and he was so encouraging. And he said, there was just, I noticed there was a small bit of concern. And he he, he said, now this conversation, Miriam, is 10 years ago. So like I'm paraphrasing now here big time. So if I'm I'm getting him wrong, my apologies. But (laughs) he he kind of, I could tell there was a bit of concern. And then he said to me, there's not anything in this that that would embarrass us. (laughs) And then I realised what he was getting at. I thought, oh God, no, it's, it's, it's not that sort of book at all. Like it's, 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 and actually the first book going back, you know, it was a love story, but it was very much a love story. Like it was not, it was not porn. (laughs) Definitely not. And the new book, was there one story from the 80s that sparked this idea for you? Um, was there one? St- no, just the general sense of those years and how great the music was and just little bits and pieces, little images in my head. One of them was when I was when I first got the idea and it wasn't fully formed and, and the Birdie Troy character wasn't fully formed and the, the diamonds weren't fully formed. I, I remember watching because you start watching YouTube videos and all of that, a little clip of Gay Byrne um, yeah. interviewing this selection of exotic looking creatures on the uh, Late Late Show. And he, he kind of looks at one lad and he says, now they tell me, son, you're a goth. Is that what they call you now? A goth. And it just all that stuff sort of played into it. And it's interesting about friendships in this book. You know, the band members is teenagers, but also is older women and their friendships. Mm. I, I was interested in writing about um, teenage friendships in particular because I think the friendships of teenage girls are particularly fascinating because they can be quite obsessive and we all remember when we were at school and you could spend an entire day in a classroom with someone but it wasn't enough like you still had to call (laughs) each other when you got home or you had to walk around the town together that evening so yes and I was then interested in the idea of returning to those same women 40 years later to see what had happened, to see how they had changed and how their friendships had changed. I find that really interesting, the book. 
Are you disciplined about writing? I mean, I, I interview a lot of writers and some people get up, sit at their desk early. Others just wait until they're inspired. How do you write? I think um, years in journalism have taught me that you, for me, you can't just wait. You just have to get on with it. Am I incredibly disciplined? No, I, do, I don't write every day. I can't write every day. At the moment in particular, it's very hard to turn away from the news. Very, very hard at the moment. So, no, I don't write every day. But when I do write, I am quite disciplined. And even if it's not working well, I just remind myself, listen, you did this before. You can do it again. Well, Rachel, it did work really well. It's a great read. It's your new book, Rachel English's Whatever Happened to Birdie Troy. And it's published by Hachette. Thanks so much for coming in today, Thanks a million, Miriam. Thank you. It's a complete joy. I'm going to tell about a new competition we have now this morning, sticking with the 80s theme. This April, the RT Concert Orchestra is taking a trip back to that decade with their 80s big night out. Top singers, Alison Gere and Mick Wilson, join them for hits like Careless Whisper, Don't Stop Believing, It's Raining Men, 9 to 5, lots more. It's on in the National Concert Hall on April the 5th, then on in Waterford on April the 6th. You can find all the details on rt.ie forward slash co. Well, we have a pair of tickets to give away this morning for the Dublin date, along with a pre-show dinner with wine at Shanahan's on the Green, American-style steakhouse and seafood restaurant. Then after the concert, you can unwind with bed and breakfast in an executive room in the Hilton Dublin, just five minutes stroll from the heart of our city with the Lewis on your doorstep. Now, all you have to do is listen to this 1980s hit and text us the name of the singer. Right, so text the name of that singer to 51551 or you can email Miriam at rt.ie. Just before we take a break, Rachel, you're still with me. Paula texts to say, tell Rachel the Boy Scouts were an all-female power pop punk band from Dublin formed in 1977. They never released a single, but they played lots of gigs around Ireland back in the day, including the Dandelion Market. Well, that's fantastic to know because I've been saying all along, you know, no sooner will I start talking about this book than people will start contacting me to say, well, you never heard about the so-and-sos. And yeah, it's delighted to hear that the, the, the diamonds did the diamonds did have a real precursor. Thanks, Paula. Absolutely. We'll take a break. 